Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation 16. These uh, good song to sing as we remember that Christ holds us fast, particularly as we get into some of these dark and difficult judgments that are to come here in Revelation. If you haven't been with us, uh, we're working our way through Revelation. We have been for uh, some time on and off uh, over these last couple of years doing a few uh, bits and then having a break and a few bits more. We're now into our final push towards the end, but that means it's a time of darkness, of despair, of judgment um, before a final time of celebration and glory in the new city uh, with our Lord forever and ever. So, um, yeah. Revelation 16, as we continue through this chapter, we begin in verse 10 this morning. This is God's word. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail, because the plague was so terrible. Amen. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, we read these words and they almost stun us to silence. Help us in these moments to think about them carefully and wisely and well. And Lord, as we do, would you remind us that you hold us fast. And Lord, would you remind us too of that call, that mission given to us to go and to make disciples, to go and to be your witnesses. So Lord, come teach us this morning. May your will be done. Nothing more, nothing less, and certainly nothing else. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever heard that expression. It couldn't get much worse. 
I'm sure we've all uttered that at moments in time, and it might be over trivial little things, or it might be over major things in our lives uh, before Christmas. Uh, I got this phone call one day, busy week, the week, the week before Christmas, busy week in the life of a pastor, all the services to think of and to prepare, school things going on, uh, visits to our older friends and all of those things. And I'm sitting at my desk and Morag phones and says, somebody smashed my car. And you go, ah. Oh. Now I knew she wasn't in it because it was the middle of the day and she was at her work, but it's that, ah. Oh. And you go and we went and uh, looked at the car and I was going to need fixed and we had to get a courtesy car in its place and all the hassle that goes with it. But it's just a car. Day before Christmas, I was driving Rebecca to a train station and I just happened to glance out the front of my window, as you often do in your car. It's good to glance out the front window. And <laughs> glanced out the front window and there before me was this big crack that had just appeared out of nowhere. And I remembered that the day before I'd been on the motorway and a stone had hit my car and I'd obviously cracked the windscreen. You phone up. How much worse can it get? You phone up. We can fix your car, sir, but it'll not be till the 10th or 12th of January. What? Can it get much worse? Now, of course I can because it's just a car and I've got two feet and I can walk. But you get the idea, don't you? Uh, we say these things so often in our lives because things happen and we think to ourselves it couldn't get much worse worse. And then it does. Well, for those still alive on earth at the beginning of the last part of the tribulation, things can and do get a whole lot worse. The great God of grace, of love, of immense patience has finally reached the limits of his endurance. It's time for his wrath to fall upon the world and the events described here are awful in their descriptions, but surely much worse in their fulfillment. Last week, we looked at the first four bowl judgments. Remember, seven's a great number uh, right through Revelation. We've had the seven seals being broken and opened. We've had the seven trumpets, and now we're on to these seven bowls. We looked at the first four of them last week, God's final judgment on wicked humanity and all evil uh, on the beast itself. We thought on the painful sores that afflicted those who had taken the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. We saw the bloody seas and streams as all water, fresh and salt, was polluted with blood. And all living creatures within the waters were killed. We read about the scorching sun coming down on all people. And yet, 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 the incredible a hard attitude of the people who were still alive and who still, for some reason, verse 9, refused to repent and to glorify God. It is unbelievable, the attitude of people. And yet it shouldn't surprise us, for we see it all around us each and every day of life. People ignorant of God, ignoring God, indulging in more and more selfish, sinful behavior. Well, God's patience won't last forever. He's given everyone every opportunity to hear and to respond to his grace and his mercy, but it won't last. He has promised judgment. The lion of Judah, the lamb of God, has broken open the seal on the scroll. The seven seals were opened and we saw the destruction that came. The seven trumpets have sounded and up to a third of the earth has come under punishment and pain. And now the seven bowls of judgment are quite literally being dumped out 
onto all the earth. No longer just one locality as in the plagues of Egypt. No longer just a third uh, of the place as in the plagues of Revelation 8 to 11. Now God is bringing his final and complete judgment on all the earth. And we've seen those first four bowls. If you missed out, go online and listen in again. Let's look at the final three as we think on the conclusion of the final judgment. And we begin with the fifth bowl. And there we see darkness and despair. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. As we come to these last three bowls, let's keep in mind that the Antichrist has set up his one world government and has dominated the global scene during the tribulation period. This is all about to come to an end as the Lord begins this final judgment. And this fifth bowl is poured out on his throne, on the Antichrist's throne. His cruel reign of bloodshed and manipulation is about to be judged by the power of Almighty God, beginning at the source of evil and spreading throughout his entire kingdom. He may be a powerful ruler, energized and supported by Satan, but he is helpless to defend himself against the God of heaven. People may feel as if they can get by with sin, but eventually God will deal with it at the very source of its origin. And we see the agony, the agony that they are plunged into. Darkness covers the whole land. This darkness is not the darkness that we normally think of. It is absolute inky blackness. The darkness will be so complete that nothing can penetrate it. Surely this darkness suggests some change in the way that light reaches this planet suggests that the power grids that we use to light the earth will be done away with. Whatever causes this darkness, it will be severe and it will be complete. The Antichrist and the wicked of this world have denied God living lives consumed by sin, choosing darkness over light at every opportunity. And God has brought a thick consuming darkness to their world now. As we've already seen, as we've looked at some of these other bowls, God does at times allow people exactly uh, what they desire. He does render judgment by giving the wicked the desire of their hearts, turning them over to their lusts. They wanted the darkness of sin. And God has granted their desire. He has given them darkness. And I'm sure this will be much more uh, than we could even begin to imagine. Uh, what it could be like. Verse 10 continues, men nod their tongues in agony and curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. As the darkness sets in, they will gnaw their tongues with pain. Imagine the boils that they've already got, the blood they've seen, the contamination of water, the sunburn being intensified by the dreadful darkness and agonizing pain. And what we get there is a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of hell. God is letting the Antichrist and his followers know what is waiting on them because they have rejected Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 30, when speaking of hell? He said, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. The people are in agony. And yet, even as we read that, even as we finish verse 11, we see the attitude of the people still We've just seen their agony, but look at their attitude. Still they refuse God. 
Still they curse God. Still they won't repent and turn around. Still they stick in their sin and stick with the Antichrist and stick their tongue out at God almost. Men nod their tongues, it says, in agony and curse the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refuse to repent of what they had done. How stubborn. When the plagues come, when the pains come, you would think that that would be enough for people to come to their senses, to have enough sense to repent of their sins and turn to God, but not this people. They shake their puny fists in the very face of God, and they curse him, and they blaspheme him. And what a tragedy. But dare I say it, what a window into the human heart. These verses just affirm the truth of God's word in regard to the total depravity of humankind. When left to ourselves, we are wicked, we are vile in all our ways. Our world is filled with those who refuse to bow before a holy Lord. You know, I am so, so, so grateful that the Lord opened my eyes and let me see the truth. So glad that he placed people in my life who pointed me to Jesus. So thankful that whilst I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I'm saved by grace. Nothing of me, all of it is of God. These people have been shown God's grace. Now they're experiencing his wrath. And still, for some reason, they will not acknowledge their sin and their need for a savior, still they will not worship God. Darkness, despair, and it gets worse because the sixth bowl comes, dried up, directed for battle. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. The Euphrates, if you know anything about it, begins in Turkey at Mount Ararat, flows south through Iraq into the Persian Gulf, This river, which is over uh, 1,700 miles long, at at its widest point, is 3,600 feet uh, wide. It has been for centuries the dividing line between the east and the west. And the Euphrates has already played a great part in Revelation. Already back in chapter 9, four angels were released who were bound at the Euphrates. And we heard of 200 million troops. Well, now God comes and he dries up that mighty river And we discover that this will allow the kings of the east to invade the land. And there are four key things here in regards to this sixth bowl. Firstly, it's an army prepared that we see. An army prepared, it says quite literally, the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. There needs to be access. There needs to be access for the eastern leaders who will come to the land of Palestine. And the intention of this army is the total destruction of Israel. The phrase, the kings of the east, literally means the kings of the rising sun. And this reference has caused many to speculate that we're talking about China here and and her allies. uh, They will be the source of this army. Others suggest Russia because of its size. That said, even if you look at our world today, the region around the Middle East uh, could easily be the Islamic states of Jordan, Iraq, Iran, Saudi, Arab nations to the east of Israel. The Bible doesn't say specifically, but we know that a nation, nations, an army is going to come from the east, and it's going to be the largest army ever seen, and it's going to come against Israel. A battle is brewing, and this bowl will help set the stage. We also see the antagonists present and performing there. Verse 13, then I saw the three evil spirits that looked like frogs. 
They come out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. That's a pretty gross sort of vision, isn't it? Like something coming out of a horror film. Here we find that the uh, Satan's ungodly trio will spill out three unclean spirits going out to further deceive the world leaders in order to unite them in battle against Israel. They're pictured as frogs, and frogs are unclean creatures, slimy little animals. These frog-like creatures come out of the mouths of the three. Why out of the mouth? Well, the mouth is the seat of influence, isn't it? The source of speech, that's where influence comes from. It comes from uh, the speech of others. Antichrist has been on the scene performing apparent miracles, and Satan's evil influence will entice the world to come together to try to do away with the people of God. The world has been deceived since the creation of man by the subtlety of Satan, And during these end times, this deception will continue, but just on a much larger scale. Through these demons, through their performance of signs, many are deceived into joining forces, gathering for battle on the great day of God Almighty. But it's at this point that there seems to be a little interlude in the bold judgment. We've seen little interludes throughout uh, Revelation. Verse 15 stands out from the rest here. This is an announcement proclaimed Behold, I come like a thief. Uh, Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. This verse speaks of the second coming of the Lord. Prior to the tribulation, the church was raptured and the Lord's return is soon at hand. The world may think that they have gotten the upper hand, but God is in complete control. This may seem tragic for Israel, but it's all part of God's amazing plan. And the armies of the world will gather in confidence under the leadership of Antichrist, feeling, uh, feeling invincible in their diabolical plan. But Jesus will return as he said he would in all power. And the world may choose to deny it, but the Lord is coming again, and it may be sooner than we think. And Jesus is telling his precious people to hang on for a little longer. His coming that has been imminent is now immediate. He is at the door. The saints of God are encouraged to keep faith for a few more days. The Lord is coming. He is coming like a thief. The world will not see the signs, but he will come in an instant and bring judgment with him. Jesus lets his people know, however, uh, that their waiting is over. Then after that interlude, very brief, after that interlude, we're back to the sixth bowl judgment, back to the plague, and here we're introduced to Armageddon. Armageddon. Then they gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All the armies of the world will gather in the valley of Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo is located in the plain of Estrelon. Its location is somewhat famous in biblical battles. Uh, It was here that Barak and Deborah defeated the Canaanites in Judges 4 and 5. Here that Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 6 to 8. It's the same valley where uh, both King Saul and his son Jonathan were killed in battle in 1 Samuel 31. King Josiah also met his death in the valley of Megiddo in 2 Chronicles 35. If you want to come out with biblical history, Napoleon declared Megiddo the greatest natural battlefield on this planet. It is here that the Lord will defeat the armies of the world. 
He will actually draw these armies together, finally crushing their resistance. And as a world looks on, expecting the total annihilation of Israel, God has a very different plan. It may appear that the world has conquered the righteous, driving the Lord from the world he created. But here the line of Judah will roar as he defeats the world system that has rejected him and polluted the earth. The battle is going to be completely one-sided and not in the way that anybody expects. And it will be over as quickly as it begins as the Lord destroys them. And we'll see all of that in chapter 19. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. There's still one bowl, though. Still a few verses here in Revelation 16. In verse 17, we find the seventh bowl, and with it, devastation and destruction. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. A loud voice. The Greek word is mega. And actually, although you maybe can't see it in some of your modern translations here in the English, it occurs seven times in this last bowl. Judgment, that word mega, that word great. Everything about this is great. It comes from God, and God is great. Two key things to notice, uh, and then we're done. Firstly, adjudication, the final word. A voice from heaven declares, it is done. This statement signals the fact that judgment has reached an end. Judgment has reached its consummation. The Lord will step out uh, to return in power. And when Jesus was on the cross, do you remember his final words? It is finished. It's done. And there he announced his victory. There he cries, it is done, uh, as he announces his verdict. Uh, uh, There he cried out in joy. Here he comes to cry out in judgment. He's letting us know that we have reached the end of judgment. Glory is just round the corner. God has spoken and his verdict has been carried out. It is done as in the perfect tense. It means it has been and will remain done. This is it. Christ then comes and sets up his kingdom. And just at Calvary, do you remember? Just at Calvary and the cross, the crucifixion, just when it was finished, God punctuated it with an earthquake. So here too, only this earthquake isn't just so local. It's going to be worldwide. And it's going to remake the earth appropriately for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his universal reign. And then in verses 18 to 21, we find adjudication, the final woe. The final woe, the final word that's finished. And now the woe that comes with it. God has been in the process of judging the earth all the way through the tribulation. Wave after wave of divine wrath has washed over this world and its inhabitants. And still this world system stands in continued defiance to the will of God in heaven. And here, in one final stroke, God destroys the last vestiges of human power. In one final judgment, God removes the last of humanity's props. God destroys everything that people have built and gloried in. In a moment, the world is brought to its knees. Then there came, it says, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. And we've all seen the devastation and horror that an earthquake can bring. Uh, If you've watched your news just in the last couple of days, even just an earthquake in a part of Turkey and the devastation that it causes. 
Or we think back to probably the, the biggest earthquake in, in our time. And we think back to 2004 in December and the earthquake that triggered the tsunami that caused such devastation on the other side of the world. And the world has never experienced an earthquake of this magnitude here though. Can you imagine the lives of people on earth? They've faced the turmoil of recent plagues. The world is plunged in darkness. And now the earth begins to shake violently under the hand of God. And this earthquake causes immense damage to the city. Verse 19, it says, The great city uh, split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. The great city is believed to be Jerusalem. During the earthquake, it will be divided into three uh, parts. And this won't be confined to Jerusalem, but the major cities of the world will crumble and fall as the final wrath of God is poured out. Cities, cities, we all clamor for cities these days. People want cities. They want to be in places of pleasure, in places of great economics, of places of power. That's why we've become city dwellers rather than country dwellers in our day and in our age. Cities are seen like that but they're all going to be taken away in a moment of time. God will strike the very root of humanity's pride and wickedness. And then the seat of Antichrist, Babylon itself, will be judged and dealt with. God remembered Babylon the great, gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Antichrist's world system has enjoyed a run of power, of domination, but it's all going to come to an abrupt end as the seventh bow is poured out. God has not forgotten the wickedness that Antichrist promoted, and it will not go unjudged. And we'll see more of this in the next couple of chapters. It's hard to imagine the scene before our eyes, yet nothing escapes the ravages of an earthquake in that scale. Verse 20, every island fled away, and the mountains could not be found. The continents are going to shift. Islands will be swallowed up under massive tsunamis. The mountains will crumble and disappear. The world as we know it will be drastically, dramatically changed, completely unrecognizable to what it was before. And we can't begin to imagine the power that God has. And all of that power will be released as he judges completely yet righteously and justly. And as all of that happens, we see verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Everything that sits beneath this shower of hail will be destroyed. People, homes, cars, buildings, crops, everything that people prize will be destroyed. Nothing will be left. And incredibly, incredibly, even as all of that takes place, Still, the very last people on earth are complaining to God. They're cursing God. Still, they refuse to acknowledge who he is and what he's done, what he can do. And they will go to hell, defying the mercies of God and holding on to the one that they have served, Satan. Satan, how tragic. How tragic. Tragic. Friends, it doesn't have to be that way. We can avoid these last judgments. We can avoid this final judgment. Do you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you assured that you will avoid the wrath of God? There's still time for you to come if you're unsure. 
I am so glad, so glad again that God has loved me, that Jesus has saved me, that the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to see the truth. He longs for you to see the truth. He longs for you to come in faith as well and to accept the forgiveness that he offers and the certain hope of resurrection to eternal life he brings. Verse 15 warns us though. Verse 15, just jump back to the middle there to verse 15. Verse 15 warns us, Behold, I come like a thief. Will you be ready? You can't just keep putting it off. I'll just carry on living my sinful life today. I'll carry on ignoring God today. I'll carry on with a little bit of coming to church on a Sunday, but doing what I want the rest of the week today because that's okay. I've got plenty of time. Who says? Behold, behold, I come like a thief. When does a thief come when you're ready? Not a chance. A thief comes when you're least prepared. He comes in the middle of the night. Our Lord could come at any moment. Are you ready? Have you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ? Let me finish with a story about preparation. A young man applied for a job as a farmhand. When asked for his qualifications, he said, I can sleep when the wind blows. That's puzzled the farmer somewhat, but he took a liking to that young man and hired him. A few days later, the farmer and his wife were awakened in the middle of the night by a violent storm. They quickly began to check things out to see if all was secure. They found that the shutters of the farmhouse had been securely fastened. A good supply of logs had been set next to the fireplace. The farm implements had been moved into the storage shed, safe from the elements. The tractor had been moved into the garage. The barn had been properly locked. All was well. Even the animals were calm. It was then, it was then that the farmer grasped the meaning of the young man's words, I can sleep when the wind blows. Because the farmhand had prepared, had performed his work loyally and faithfully when the skies were clear. He was prepared for the storm when it broke. And consequently, when the wind blew, he had no fear. He was able to sleep in peace. Friends, are you prepared? Are you ready? When the Lord comes calling like a thief in the night, is your name on the roll? Let's pray together.